Hi, listeners. Today, we are taking you on a journey into the room where all the decisions are made. Yes, we are entering in the C-suite, and we will be talking to some of the top executives in hospitality. You will hear from Ewan McGlashan, the CEO of Valor Hospitality, Don Gallagher, COO of Crescent Hotels, Thatcher Brown, COO of Four Seasons Yachts, and Raul Leal, CEO of SH Resorts and Hotels. Enjoy this episode. Welcome to the Hospitality Mentor Podcast. I'm your host, Steve Turk. Join me as we dive into the personal stories of some of the world's best hospitality professionals. We follow the journey of their ups, downs, and wild turns to find out what it truly takes to make it in the amazing world of hospitality. This episode is brought to you by our podcast partners at Real Time Reservation. Their inventory management system is best in class for hotels and resorts to manage their non-room inventory. The web-based application allows for creative upselling of overnight and daytime visitors with add-ons and pre-planned packages. Hotel guests and non-guests can reserve cabanas, pool chairs, activities, amenities, excursions, events, day passes, and much more. The real-time reservation platform offers a fully integrated pre-arrival portal where guests are verified through the property management system. Guests can prepay for cabanas and activities through credit card integrations, which are then processed through point of sale. All of our listeners that might be interested in using real-time reservation are welcome to explore the demo at realtimereservation.com. Once again, that's realtimereservation.com. Welcome to another episode of the Hospitality Mentor Podcast. Today, I'm very excited to have Ewan McGlashan, the managing partner of Valor Hospitality, here on the program today. Ewan, thanks for joining me. Ah, you're welcome. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to chat to you today. Well, Ewan, we jump right in on this podcast. What was your first job in hospitality? Oh, my first job. So I... I actually, as you probably gathered from the accent, I am not from the United States or Alabama. I'm from a little town called Pennycook in Scotland, just outside Edinburgh. And I grew up in a relatively uh, tough working class town in Scotland and, and left home at six and took a job as an apprentice in a hotel on the borders of Scotland. And actually my first job as an apprentice, was working in the kitchen doing double shifts, washing pots and peeling vegetables. So that was my, and then on my two days, two days off a week, I enrolled myself in a technical college to do both food service and then food production. So it was, uh, it was probably not the most glamorous start ever. So what led you to doing that? Was that something that was just in the neighborhood? That was the job that was available or was someone in your family in hospitality? Uh, you, you know, my, my, actually my, my mother, God bless her, she passed just before COVID. She, she saw an ad in a newspaper, the, this very well-known hotel on the borders of Scotland were looking to take on three apprentices. And it was probably a good time. I don't remember too much about that. It's a long time ago, but off I, I packed my bags and off I went. I got one of the three, and and so the journey began. And it was an it was an interesting one because it was there was a lot of. One day I'll write a book about some of that stuff uh, that I can remember. I can remember a lot of the shenanigans, but 
ultimately I ended up by the time I was 18, I think I was one of the youngest executive chefs in Scotland. So the food production part became a real passion. And it was actually that work. It was the work experience that got me into uni. So based on work experience, same thing with, with university. I did a degree in institutional management using hotels as a base. And I, I think they took something like 95 into, into the year. And they took three of us based on work experience. So three became a pretty popular number. <laughs> That's amazing. And so at 18, leading a kitchen, was it a big team? Was it a small team? Because at 18, you know, in the kitchen, I like to say it's kind of like being on a pirate ship. Yeah, it was a it was a relatively it was a look it was a relatively it was a relatively small team but you know they 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 grew us up uh, they they grew us quick in Scotland so you're worldly wise by the time you're about twelve <laughs> it was funny so I was pretty I was pretty I was pretty hardcore and I was playing rugby so not too many people were messing with me uh-huh, I would not mess with you either with that background so. <laughs> As you get to university, are you studying hospitality, or will you say, "No, nah, that was just for fun. I'm gonna yeah, go no, no, make no. something it of myself." A, it was a, it was hospitality based, absolutely. Look, I mean, I I don't know how much of that stuff's relevant today, to be honest. And then I'm not even sure how much of it was relevant when I got out. I, I worked my way through uni. I had about five part-time jobs in all different aspects of hospitality, largely all in largely all in food and beverage. A little bit of front office, held those down, paid my way through. And I met my wife, who was to become my wife. She was a student who had uh, who had been born in, in East Africa and Kenya, British family. And she she was at uni. She went back to Kenya. I went over there a couple of times on vacation to see her and kind of fell in love with, with Africa. And then we ended up, yeah, we, we got married and about nine months later, left for Cape Town, South Africa. So I always knew I wanted to get out of Scotland. I always wanted to travel the world. So yeah, about, about 23, I headed off. But up until that point, when I graduated uni, I had a small contract catering company that my dad had, uh, he couldn't afford to do it. So God bless him, but he, he guaranteed a loan. I bought this catering company, built it up over about a year and a half. And when I was 23, sold uh, sold it and headed off with my, my wife to in South Africa. So as I said, I did everything pretty young. And did you have a job set up when you were heading over to South Africa? Or was it say, I'm heading with you, my love, and I'm going to figure this out. And I'm going to do something in hospitality. Well, she she was from Kenya. Her dad had died. Her mom had been to be in Cape Town because her parents were still alive there. And she went to look after them. And I had just fallen in love with it. It was, it was a great time in South Africa. It was around 89, 90, just as Mandela was about released there was a great energy I'd, we'd been there a couple of times on holiday and i just loved it so we we ended up no we had about two suitcases each and we took off with nothing absolutely nothing so then how does your career progress what do you do do you start searching the job boards for jobs or did you have some people you knew what did you do when you got there no look we we made a we made a few contacts quickly i got in touch with a couple of recruitment agents uh, and I got a job in a, uh, you know, Cape Town's changed a lot since then till today. And I got a, a great job as a restaurant manager in a beachfront hotel called the Bay Hotel. That soon led to becoming food and beverage manager, which then led to being group F&B manager. And they had a bunch of what I call high street retail restaurants plus 
hotel F and B. So I moved up. I moved up the ranks really quickly, and then I then uh, left them and became chief exec of what was then a, a chain of sports bars that became nightclubs after 11 p.m. Really well known. One in Cape Town, one in Joburg, Johannesburg, and one in Durban. And so I was the group director, chief exec of those three sports bars. Were you nervous making that jump when you were yet, like kind of how old were you around that time? Like in your late twenties? No, still only mid. I mean, I, I, I'll, I'll, there's a punchline to this. It's actually quite interesting because that that job that I held as an F and B manager turned out to be one of the best things ever. So I ran these sports bars for a couple of years, and then I got a call out of the blue when I was. I was only 27, I think. And it was from an amazing family called the Brand family who were about to build this luxury hotel on the waterfront of Cape Town. And they had reached out to the GM of the hotel where I was F&B and offered him the job. And he said, no, but if you want to take a chance on this young guy, been really impressed by him. He's running the sports cafe now. You should talk to him. So they were clearly nervous because it was like i think there was 14 interviews and uh and eventually yeah they did they took the leap of faith and gave me a job that they pro- probably should never have given me because i certainly wasn't qualified for it because now suddenly there i was i was handed the keys to a company car and a site trailer office and that was it and so obviously i was surrounded by amazing people they'd hired all the construction company and the architects etc so, so suddenly at 27, 28, I'm learning about how to build a five-star luxury international hotel and then to hire the entire staff, train, build a team around me. Uh, and it turned, out to be, it turned out to be the best thing that ever happened to me. It was, it was absolutely bloody terrifying for the first couple of years. We, you know, you can, build, you can build well and quickly in Africa. And so we opened, we started building in 95, opened in Christmas 96. And then in early 2000, and I'm not being braggy, it's just a, it's a, it's a fun story. This is a, another one you could write a book about, but in early, in early 2000, we won Best Hotel in the World, with Condé Nast Traveler. Unbelievable. So I'm just trying to picture <laughs> this, right? Owners of this hotel, five-star luxury property, handing the keys to a guy who's running upscale sports bars, but that's not, what would you do? I, don't, I mean, I don't think that, would you give you, have given yourself a chance? Yeah, uh, yeah, I don't know. Who knows? I'm always <laughs> self-deprecating. I've, I've actually, I like to think I've got pretty low ego. I, I, I always tell people, I always joke, I say the job I should never have been given. But yeah, look, I, I, was, I was passionate. Uh, you know, I'd, I'd been really lucky to have some really good mentors around me. I was always very strong about leadership. They were, they were a family that were um, very, very high on, on culture, dignity and respect for everybody, high integrity. And so and I, I, I fitted that, you know, perfectly for them. So it was a good, it was definitely a good alliance. I love hearing it. And so I think it's exciting to hear that, you know, you had the vision. So clearly you were capable of running it because you won best hotel in the world, like you mentioned. How did you start building a team that way to to achieve that? Was that a goal or was it just, hey, we're going to be the best we can be every day? What was your mantra as a leader during that time? To be fair, listen, I had a lot of, a lot of amazing people around me. Uh, one of the guys that was very instrumental, well, Chippy Brand, who was the father, was amazing. His son, Charles Brand, was amazing. 
there was a guy called Colin Hall who had been actually the the CEO, youngest CEO in South Africa when he was the CEO of South African Breweries, which is now one of the biggest brewers in the world. Uh, I think he was CEO of, of SAB when he was maybe 28. And at that point, he was then the chairman of, of Woltru, so was friends with Stephen Covey and owned the Covey Leadership Center rights for Africa. So, you know, there were, it's multi-layered. He took me through Covey. He made me a facilitator for Covey. The owners let me train the team on Covey. And one of the things that we did is uh, I, we probably interviewed, as a, a total as a team, we probably interviewed 7,500 people. I interviewed 1,500 to take 150. And 75%, now remember, we're talking Africa and tourism wasn't as big as it is today in South Africa and Cape Town especially. So, you know, 1,500 interviews to take 150 people. And then those 150 people, 75 had never worked in hospitality before. And remember, a lot of them are coming from townships. So when we're talking about opening a five-star hotel, they don't even know what a hotel is. Never mind a five-star. So, so they let me take Covey throughout the entire the team. And then we had three, three months of training. And as I remember, I think something like 200 training courses. And that's where I learned a lot about, about training technique, training material. And that there's only two ways that you can train people. There's personal and professional. Professional is actually relatively easy. It, I say that with tongue in cheek, but, you know, make the bed this way, answer the phone in three rings, surf from the left, clear from the right, yada, 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 right? There's that professional excellence. The personal side is all about emotional intelligence, self-awareness, self-confidence. So, you know, even today as Valor, you know, that sits at the backbone of all we do. And, and so relative to culture, we want to grow people personally and professionally. So that's where I learned that. And, you know, the most amazing thing was we, we took a long, 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 long time to get the people. And then when we did, the staff turnover in the four and a half years I was there was about 2%. Wow. So you created a great place for everyone to work. It was amazing. Yeah, we won a, we won a lot of... We won a we, and I say we because it was we, we. We won a lot of awards, but the the energy that we created, even when I see some of those people now today, they they still say to me it was the best years of their lives. They just we maybe didn't all realize it at the time, but we, we it was certainly something very special. And we were all young, so you know when you're young, young leaders are actually amazing because they don't have the they don't have the same paralysis through analysis you tend to get as you get older. You, you truly have been all over the world. You have run some of the best hotels in the world. Uh, but if young Ewan was starting on your team today and he was you know, coming in to work in the kitchen and was brand new on the team, what advice would you give young Ewan if he was starting in hospitality? You got to love it. You've got to have a passion for it. You definitely have to keep a smile on your face. You know, whatever the, whatever the boss asks you to do, drop whatever else is on that list and do that first make sure the the boss is happy and you'll you'll be good uh, and just know that it's a it's a really diverse business where the opportunities are there if you're willing to put in the time and the effort and you can you can do really really well in this industry and you can have a you can have a hell of an exciting journey and it won't always be better roses let's be honest that's 
you know, we've all got to have these scars on our back and, and you're going to get a lot of them in this, this business, but it's a great one. Today, I'm very excited to have Don Gallagher, the Chief Commercial Officer for Crescent Hotels and Resorts. Don, thanks for joining me today. Steve, thanks for having me. And I, I love the idea behind this, this podcast. I wish we would have had this 20 years ago, but I think it's, it's great that we're doing it now. And it's a great venue that you started. So thank you for having me on your show. Uh, it means the world to me. And I'm very grateful to have you today. And on this podcast, we jump right in right away. So what was your first job in hospitality, Don? So the good news is I'm still in the hospitality industry because my first job wouldn't have been where I was most successful, right? But when I was young, living in California, my grandparents had a motel and we were, you know, it feels like my mother dropped us off at the motel in the summer to help our favorite housekeeper, her name was Cruz, clean rooms. So, you know, I started, I started there, not very successfully. So, but, but it was kind of the first time that I looked at hospitality differently. You know, if you fast forward from there, when I was in college, you had to have, I'm going to say 600 hours of hospitality experience before you could get your degree. And at that point I was living by myself, which was not easy. So when I went to get my hospitality experience, I I stopped going to school because I, I couldn't afford to do both. And so my first, yeah. So my first hotel experience as an adult was at the Phoenix Park Hotel in Washington, D.C. It's a great, great hotel right on Capitol Hill. I'm proud to say I married my husband, who also was the bartender at the Phoenix Park Hotel from Ireland. But that really, to me, was that first fundamental grounding of, do I want to be in this industry or not? And going to college for hospitality marketing, you kind of know when you're in your niche and you know when you feel something is right. And when I did work at that very small hotel. The good news is it was a small hotel, so I did everything. I did reservations, I did sales, I did front desk. I did lug suitcases back and forth from back of the front desk to to customers. So you learn a lot. You learn a lot in a smaller hotel than you do in a bigger hotel. And it gave me a a really good grounding and a basis on on how I would move forward in my career. So that was first great, you know, and again, and an independent too. So it's no, you got to learn a lot. And how did you know you wanted to do it? Was it something that you just remember as a kid liking and you didn't want to do anything else? Or was it something that your family kind of helped guide you to? No, you know what? So it was one of those things where you're like, what do I go to college for? I have absolutely no idea. And you're literally reading the college cal- catalog and every little description of a degree underneath it saying, but I like that, what I have that. And I remember my dad saying, Try whatever you like. It, you know, at some point it doesn't matter. But if you don't try a class in something that sounds interesting to you, you'll never know. And so when I did this hospitality marketing class, it immediately clicked. I'm like, this is exactly what I want to do. There were other classes that, you know, that I, you know, I didn't like as much. And I thought, gosh, how much money are we going to burn through before I figure this whole thing out? So I was happy early on that when I when I found hospitality marketing, I also just found like-minded people and I found a great professor. And we did a lot of road trips to different hotels and and talked to executive committee members from directors of finance to general managers to directors of sales. So just every every part that I went through it, I knew more and more this is exactly what I wanted to do moving forward. 
No, it's a great advice, especially from your parents to give to you, because sometimes when you're in college, you stress out like, oh, this is going to be the rest of my life. Right. You know, I was going to be a lawyer because my dad's a lawyer. And then I remember talking to him, same conversations, like, if you don't like it now, you're probably not going to like it as you get into it. So find what you love doing. And he represented hotels. And so that's how I ended up in hotel world, which I loved. Oh, that's uh, great. What a great yeah. story. So as you're continuing on, did you finish? You said you had to pick and choose what you were going to do. Did you finish and get your degree or did you continue on working and getting experience? You know what? I continued on working and getting my experience. I didn't go back. And it was a, it's an interesting story, right? Because, you know, did I always want to go back and do it? Yes. Did I always feel like I had to work twice as hard as somebody with a degree because nobody's going to look at me if I don't have the degree? Yes, absolutely. So do, do, does that kind of build your foundation of I got to outwork you because my resume does not look as good as yours with that degree. So I better figure this out quickly. So I think, you know, you always feel different not having mm-hmm. a degree, but I think that the initiative that you take and the, the drive that you put into your, your because of that, I think that's what made me more successful. And I'm very competitive. So I had to look at something and know what that next step was and understand in my mind how to get there before it happened or, you know, just to ensure that success as well. Yeah. So as you're getting your experience and you're working consistently, when did you first become a leader? When did you first get that supervisor or manager title that everyone kind of strives for as they're starting out? So I was so happy. You know, I was at the Vista in Washington, D.C., which is now a Weston. So Vista... Vista International used to be Hilton International, but in the United States, they had to be Vista. Now it's all one company and all works well. But when I was at the Vista, I guess this is kind of funny. So I was at the front desk, did a great job, went to reservations, loved reservations because they had an incentive program. Mm-hmm. And with that incentive program, it, it enabled me to you know, first pay for parking in Washington, D.C., but it <laughs> enabled me to pay for my rent and pay for the stuff that I needed to. So it was great to have this job, but then I, I could be on my own and make my own success by driving through the incentive process. So you know, I'm a huge fan of room upgrades and, and selling upgrades and, and making more money. So based upon that, I was tapped to open the Weston Waltham. So that was my first management role in the late 80s to open that hotel as a reservations manager which you know today would be the revenue manager but it was a it was a great role with great experience you know when you open a hotel you create a, a family of people that you'll know for the rest of your lives you know two of them were, were in my wedding one is still I would still consider my best friend today but those relationships will never go away and we always have those remember one scenarios you know, working 14 hours a day trying to get a hotel off the ground. So that was a lot of fun. And, but it does come with, you know, some challenges when you are a first time manager. Yes, you can have book smarts. Yes, you can read leadership scores. Yes, you can read everything. But it's not until you you begin to lead to begin to understand other people and begin to understand what your style should be. And I certainly did not know my style at age 23. I can tell you that right, right now. What I can tell you is I've always been a bit outspoken. I've always been somebody who believes in being very candid and very honest. However, I didn't necessarily have filters on that candid and honesty back in when I was 22 <laughs> years old, right? So, you know, you, you learn from those mistakes. You learn 
that you can't paint with a broad brush. Everybody has to be handled individually. And I, I had a situation where I literally had three people working for me, I'm going to say for about two years. And one person who I thought we were very close, and frankly, this is what I would also say, first time manager, in a, you know, in Waltham, Massachusetts, a place I'd never been before in my life, your friends become who you work with. But as a young manager, your friends are also the people that work with you. You don't necessarily make that delineation between this is who I am and, and this is who you are. And so you blend those lines of leadership and associate. And so the good lesson there is don't do it, right? <laughs> so because they'll, you know, things will happen and they'll know something that they shouldn't know and it will cause problems. So there, there are lessons that you do learn early in your leadership role that you have to remember for the rest of your life. It should never shape your leadership moving forward, but there are those pitfalls that you just have to stay away from that I that I didn't learn. I, I hit those pitfalls head on. And then thankfully had great leaders that mentored me and believed in me because you have to be believed in or it doesn't work and, and help me through it. That's no, true. And I, I didn't think about that for a long time. In our in my 20s, it was about the same. I was a young manager at 23, 24, and you have the people that you're managing. And one of the good pieces of advice, and I want to see if you agree with this, was one of my mentors said, Steve, you can have managers, associates, and alcohol, but you can't have all three at the same location. <laughs> yes. Yeah. I mean, that's very true, Steve. Um, mm -hmm. And it's one of those lessons where everybody, you think that, oh, I can handle it. I know what I'm supposed to do. I know all this stuff but it still is going to happen because you, you put too much trust out on the line sometimes. And yeah, I, you know, it, and it's funny because it, again, this was a long time ago and this was what I would call, you know, somebody who wanted my position and good for them. However, yeah. I just didn't have my next step. I didn't have my next step to let them in and get out of their way. But then you start taking down somebody's reputation because of that in ways that, you know, just made it a very challenging environment. And again, you know, I, I learned a lot from that. I learned a lot about, you know, first of all, to this day, I will love everybody that I work with. I will treat everybody the way that they should be treated and treat them to what works for them individually. But there, but you, you learn some telltale signs on, okay, mm -hmm. I need to work this way with, you know, this, this would be a different approach with this person. And you don't know that until you go through it. So sometimes I think that, you know, as long as you're stung and you can recover, you're fine. As long as, as long as the leaders around you have built a safe environment for you to fail in and stay successful, you're fine. Where it's a hard and fast, hard no, you got to move on. Those could have been career changing moments for me. Young Don, who was working at the front desk, was starting on your team today at Crescent. What advice would you give her if she was starting out today? The first advice that I would give her is to cross-train in every department. Sometimes people start at the front desk because they need a paycheck. But this industry is so much more than a paycheck. And so explore the different departments really begin to talk to different leaders, make what make known what your goals can be. 
and find a way to find success. I mean, we're lucky today. We've got LinkedIn. We've got different ways to connect to people. You know, Steve, I think that you've done a great job with this podcast in the different people in the industry that you brought forward so that they can listen to those podcasts and understand a different story and they can create their own. So first and foremost, stay with the hospitality industry. This industry, you know, will far outlast anything. We'll never knock on wood, have a COVID again, but the strength of what happens in the hotel business and the relationships that you gain are second to none that you'd gain in any other industry. It is family at the end. Today, I'm very excited to have Thatcher Brown here, and I need to get a breath ready to get his title in. Thatcher is the Chief Commercial Officer and Head of Joint Yacht Operations at Mark Henry Cruise Holdings, owner and joint operator of Four Seasons Yachts. Thatcher, how did I do? I think, I think you did really well. It's, it's, it's funny. It is a mouthful, and it, it certainly doesn't pass the grandmother test when you try and explain it to, to her. But, you know, it's, it's one of those manifestations as you start, as you start an enterprise. It, it oftentimes starts with, I would just say, the, all the legal agreements and details of the entities, and then you kind of absorb them into your title as, as gracefully as possible. But essentially, yes, my job is to drive the sales and, and marketing and the go-to-market planning of, of the new Four Seasons Yacht Enterprise. So when you graduate college, do you go work in England or are you working for your family? What happens after you graduate? Steve, I was really excited when I graduated. I had received a couple job offers and one was, you know, one was from Four Seasons and they said, Thatcher, we'd really like to, to bring you on board. And I was so excited. I, I was jumping out of my skin, you know, Four Seasons. This was really <laughs> something special yeah, premiere mm-hmm. yeah so anyway i i was offered a job in chicago as the front desk i think it was and or santa barbara in food and beverage and you can guess what i took i took santa barbara i said mm-hmm. of course and it was the four seasons built war in santa barbara and of course food and beverage i didn't realize also meant stewarding so back i went into the in the kitchen i was assistant chief steward on a very large complex asset, a property, and was in charge of sanitation and dishwashing and cleanliness and all that. And that's where I started. Yeah, all all of that. And that that was interesting because I I remember meeting some great people, you know, who are, some are still with Four Seasons today. And, you know, of course I can tell you, it took me two paychecks to pay my rent in Santa Barbara. (laughs) I drove a moped sort of shamefully to work. But it was it was worth it. I was very impatient, though. I really, I was like, I graduated from school, and I yeah, know, I'm a Cornell graduate. It, it was a combination of just being ignorant and impatient and naive. I think um, if I look back at myself as that young Thatcher, I would have advised myself to be a little more patient at the time and just slow down. It wasn't that I wanted to be in asset management or finance. It was that I was like, ah, oh, I was pretty ambitious, I suppose, too. But I did some volunteer work at the same time. And during that volunteer work period, I met somebody else who actually worked in hospitality and they worked for, at the time, a company called Arthur Anderson. And so through my volunteer work, I got another job offer and I was impatient. I was, you know, and it's funny now I'm, you know, 55 years old and I, I'm working with Four Seasons again. And I'm right. so proud and so happy because I get a second chance, you know. 
Yeah. And in life, if you get that second chance, grab it. <laughs> you know, yeah, so very, you left four seasons. That's hard. I'm sure. Like you're when you talk to your parents, or are you just like, no, this is it. They're giving. Well, me the I left four seasons. Money. You know, partially because I I was able to. I I, I really like this fellow that that offered me a job. It was at Arthur Anderson in their hospitality division at the time in downtown L.A. And it was substantially more kind of from a compensation standpoint. It was great. I could start working on different projects and assets and and I could learn different skills so I moved from operations into more you know feasibility supply and demand studies mm-hmm. uh, operational audits and I started meeting GMs and and doing these appraisals and I had some great people I worked with one of them is still a dear friend and 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 you know you start to build your mentors and friends as, along the way and so I took that job and I look back and go, gosh, I'm lucky I can come full circle to Four Seasons. But, you know, you follow your your gut. And at that time, I, I had worked for a short period of time at Four Seasons, but I took this leap of faith and I, I learned a lot. But of course, sure enough, I believe the practice, you know, one of the things after working as a staffer there, I received a phone call and I got another opportunity. And I was like, gosh, what should I do? You know, I've been here two years and I, you know, but my, one of my bosses had left and what should I do? And there's nothing more kind of seductive than being wanted or feeling like you're wanted. Yeah. Being recruited is a good feeling. Well, and you know, it, it, you gotta be careful. Mm -hmm. But at that time I was, I was like, well, I'm learning about consulting, learning about the discipline of feasibility, the financials of hotels, dealing with owners, helping them every week, look at how the performance of their hotels was going, working with the asset managers. But I received this offer and I was thinking at the time, you know, should I go to grad school as well? You know, I had all these, I was flooded with how can I best build my capabilities? And this offer was really interesting. It was from a professor who was a Cornell professor who went to Harvard and became a Harvard professor and then he started writing and publishing, and he, he wrote some books on service strategy, service guarantees, Malcolm Baldrige quality, and I really admired him. So I joined this company in Boston that was led by this professor and his partner. And What was that called? That was called the TQM Group at the time. And right, so you leave Arthur time, Anderson and you joined TQM. Yeah. And and so TQM was really fun because, you know, at the time, I think the Malcolm Baldrige Quality Award was something very coveted. And it was a response to the competitiveness of Japan Mm -hmm. and the automotive industry, particularly. And the U.S. was trying to build more capability and competency in their own industry, service industries. So we became experts in helping organizations really execute on their intentions around quality service. So that was really interesting. And I felt I got a lot of exposure. I worked for different industries. And then after about three years, they decided, you know, you kind of went to work. And I think there was a decision to close the business for reasons that, you know, I didn't really understand or, mm-hmm. I mean, I was just told, well, you know, the company's going to shut down, shift in direction. And, and, and that's, and so, so what do you do? What's next? Well, you said, going back to hotels or I, I tell you, this is where my good fortune sort of slowed down because you start, you start saying, okay, I have an opportunity 
and what do I really want to do? And I bought a book, I think, it, you know, I remember I bought a book, it was called Through the Brick Wall or something like that, of, you know, how to kind of look at what you want in life. And this book kind of framed the things that were important outside of the work itself and the salary. And I remember, gosh, spending hours, days, weeks, months picking companies that I wanted to work for, identifying the people that I wanted needed to contact, calling those people, never getting through. I mean, it was like, I felt like I was auditioning in Hollywood and an actor and never getting a part, you know? And it was, I remember I was, I had, I had identified Crystal Cruises as this cruise line that I wanted to work for. And I kept on calling the president's office, never getting through or completely getting ignored. Mm -hmm. And and one day I got the secretary picked up and I said, look, my name is Thatcher Brown. You don't know me. I really want to speak to a gentleman named Joe Waters. And could you please tell him that I, I think he should hire me? She goes, yeah, yeah, sure, whatever. So I'm in my friend's office. I call Crystal Cruises again and they pick up the phone and who picks it up but this president of Crystal Cruises? Joe Brown. And I said, geez, you don't know me, but you really need to hire me. Here's why there's no methodology that exists in the cruise business that's in the hotel business in terms of research and analytics. I think I can be a great analyst. I think I can bring better decision-making material. Please meet with me. And he said, well, I'm, I'm traveling for the next six months. And I was like, I'll meet you. Where are you going? Yeah. I said, where are you going then? He goes, well, I'm going to Florida next week. Okay. I said, I will pay for my trip to Florida. Give me half an hour. Let me have breakfast with you. Where are you staying? He said, I'm staying at the Ritz Carlton. I'll give you half an hour. I'm there. There. I said, I'll pay for the trip. If I succeed and you think it's of interest to you, the only thing I would ask is that you give me another interview with the rest of your team. I flew down to Florida. I studied, studied, studied everything I could possibly know about the, the cruise industry because, you know, from my time as being mm -hmm. a waiter and I went to breakfast. I didn't know this guy. I, I sat down for half an hour and I pitched being an analyst for him in helping his executive committee drive decisions and that related to achieving the market share. He said, I want after the, after we met, he said, I want you to speak to somebody else who's here. So I spoke to them. And then I got an invitation to go to Los Angeles to meet the rest of the team and interview some more. So they offered me a job as an analyst. I was jumping for joy again, and it was worth every, you know, every effort. You know, again, sometimes you just got to invest in yourself, buy that ticket, do your homework, show up and leave it all on the court. Wait, so how, and, how did that, because now you're, you're called, it's not a small company and you've now got the head of the company on the phone. You convince him you're coming down to see him at the Ritz Carlton. You have breakfast with him, which I'm sure he was like, who's this crazy guy who keeps calling me? I'm going to give him a shot. Right. What was his what was he like? Was he nice or was he just kind of short with you? Like, All right. I have to say he was a good listener and I think he had done his due diligence a little bit as well. But he was a good listener and he asked me a lot of questions about what what I knew about the cruise industry. What And, and I was very honest about what I didn't know about the cruise industry. And I said, give me a shot. And I said, there's always a probationary period as well. So you have nothing to lose. Yeah. That's and great. it's a new role. And he 
he was a very committed man to information and and particularly around destinations and data. You know, when I showed up, I suddenly I was encountered with all of these, like this library of resources and data on the cruise industry as he had had it. And I kind of put that together and made it my office. And so my office became kind of a library for the company. And then I had some great projects. You know, I was assigned itinerary planning. I would help out. I would help out in guest satisfaction and quality and and measuring results. And so it really, we kind of created something together. It was really special. And I, my next job at Crystal, you know, then I was promoted to manager of marketing and then director of marketing. And uh, that was really great. That's amazing, right? You made your way through. Uh, that's these are the stories that I love in careers because up to, hey, you've, you've done a lot of things that a lot of people do, but that's the one thing that you chased down a job that didn't exist and created it for yourself and then grew in the company doing it. So you get the director of marketing position there. What happens after that? You end up leaving. Well, you know, I think one of the things that I realized in order to be successful in my market research and my work was you need to grow. You need to have more ships. You need more distribution. You know, I had learned enough to be dangerous. And then I was like, well, when when is Crystal going to go from two ships to three ships to four ships? And it became very clear that that wasn't going to happen. And there was no growth because if there's no growth in terms of the capacity and the distribution, you're kind of limited also in your own growth. And so I kind of saw that. And one of the things that happened to me when I was in marketing was I think I became very kind of naive to say I was exposed to sales, but it was always this mystery. How do they get all these people and travel advisors and people that come and sail on these ships and who are these people, you know? Mm-hmm. And I started learning about that. And I said, well, you know, I really haven't sold anything. I've market, been in marketing and I was kind of also a little critical of sales too. And I was a bit of a hypocrite because I was like, well, I haven't sold before, but I'm like, can't you fill the ship yeah. or, you know, yeah. what's your problem? What are you guys doing? And, <laughs> and I said, well, I got to learn how to sell. And who's the best seller? You know, who are the best sellers? Who do I want to learn from? And I, at the time, had been exposed to the publishing world because I worked very closely, the communications, paid for communications above the line. And I I said, you know what? These people at Condé Nast are ferocious. They are super salespeople. And if you don't succeed, you're out. So I said, well, I could at least see if I was a good salesperson because you get paid well, but if you fail, you're done. You know, you don't meet your target in two two issues, you're out. So I put together my pitch to work for Condé Nast Traveler. I remember I was, there was a, I think I went in to see the editor and I had put together this big creative pitch on why, you know, that was a role play. So I was acting like I was already hired, pitching to her, her own product, and boy, she gave me great feedback and um, somebody else got the job at Condé Nast Traveler. And they said, well, you know, there's a magazine called InStyle. Would you want to do that? You know, and I'm like, yeah, I'll try that. So I pitched that. And But I really was an expert in travel and kind of luxury. Right. I'm going to say it's completely different. Yeah, it was completely different. So I didn't get that job either. I was still persistent. I said, look, I really... You know, I really admire the company. I want to learn and I want to, I think I can contribute. I think I could really accelerate the travel category. And then they came back to me and said, well, our travel category in one of our books is, you know, something that we think you can really contribute to. And we think you can 
maybe build outside of that. And I said, oh, my God, this is great. My third chance, you know. And I said, well, they go, well, you have to meet the uh, person you'd work for. It's in L.A. And I said, well, what publication is that? And they said, Brides Magazine. And you can just see the wah, wah, wah. I was like, what? And then they said, actually, it's the top producing publication in our portfolio because that's where love meets money. And I said, okay, I like that. let me learn more about this. And then suddenly the world of romance travel exploded in my mind. I was like, okay, honeymoons, anniversaries, destination weddings, registry, financial products, you know, all of it. And I said, okay, great. So they hired me to work on the travel category and grow it out of Los Angeles. So did you have a job when you were applying for this or were you like, all right, Crystal Cruises, I'm done. And you're no, going I had a job. Okay. I have it. I had a job. It's always good to have a job to get a job and yes. you know, not to be miserable either. You got to right. be pretty happy. Sure, you know, yeah, the happier you are in your job, <laughs> the better off you are. Yeah, this you is a away. big change now. So this is like completely this is different. Me learning I'm how sure. to sell. Your friends are like, what are you doing, Thatcher? You're in the cruise business. How are you going to go work for Bride Magazine? It was was worse than that. Let me tell you. It was like, like, I think there was a lot of hazing involved because they're like, what are you doing? Yeah, if you were my friend, I'd probably be grilling you too. Yeah, but (laughs) you know, sometimes you have to step sideways or outside of your comfort zone. Mm -hmm. You got to build your capacity. You got to contribute at the same time. So you're not take, take, taking. But you got to move forward. And sometimes that means moving sideways before you move forward. And there's a lesson here, too, because I can tell you, I've done that several times. You're investing in yourself and you're giving back at the same time. It's a great combination. If you have a long term strategy, you know, then it really helps you to have that vision, that end goal. Because I knew I was going to learn how to sell. I, I showed up, they gave me my goals. They gave me the magazine and they gave me the keys to a car. And I started dialing for dollars, meeting people, having Southern California, Las Vegas, all the wedding business in Las Vegas. You start making contacts in these great places. All the tour operators at that time, you know, like classic vacations. I had Hawaii. Gosh, I had all the way to Fiji. I could do And you're selling ads, right? I'm selling advertising. I'm selling programming. I'm selling like integrated event-based promotions, kind of activating the readership and yeah, all of that. So it was really fun and it it really gave me a lot of confidence and it it, it created a whole network in the luxury lifestyle portfolio of Condé Nast as well. Because down the hall, you had GQ, you had Arc Digest, you had all these lifestyle things that you know, channels and people that you could work with. So Thatcher, you're here at Brides Magazine, you're selling, you're learning to sell. What's happening? So you continue. I know, on. You're really, you know, Steve, you're a glutton for punishment because we started when I was 16 and I'm 55. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm feeling sorry for your listeners. No, I like it. We're going to get, we're going to hop around, but this is really interesting because they're I crash haven't had because, like this. because there's this notion of, you know, coming full circle and life translates at different speeds. And sometimes, you know, you do things in your career and it translates much later in a way that you never thought it would that benefits you and everybody around you. And when I was with brides, I, you know, one of the things that happened actually, I fell in love when you're coming out of college and you're ambitious and you know that. And, you know, you, you also have like a, a whole nother part of your life. And at the time I was like pretty obsessed with work, I suppose, but 
I had met somebody and I had fallen in love and I was thinking, God, is this the right person? Is this the right person? And, you know, I want to make sure I, I make the right move. And what should I do to really maybe test my love? Or, you know, how, how can I punish myself more? Because sometimes when things are going well, you you almost look at yourself and go, is it possible? And at that time too, Brides Magazine had been doing really well. I had kind of got my groove. I knew, you know, I learned all about it. I felt like at, at a certain point it was going to be about making money, but, it, you know, as it related to kind of fully expressing myself, I felt like, you know, that was a piece of me that I really felt like I contributed and I got a lot out of it, but it wasn't where I wanted to end up. I, I had experienced enough to say, I'm not going to be in publishing like this, but, but, you know, it was a fair exchange. And at that time also, I fell in love. And my sister, who had been living in Madrid for many years, calls me up and says, Thatch, I've bought a sports bar franchise in Madrid. And isn't that exciting? I was thinking to myself, Madrid, okay, maybe maybe I should take some time off, go and help my sister and, and open this sports bar reconnect with my passion for Spanish and language and see if I'm really in love. Because if I miss my girlfriend at the time a lot, I'll know. So I had to go to my my girlfriend and say, you know what? I really love you and I'm, I'm super excited about our relationship. So I have to leave it. But I said, you know, I, there's an opportunity in Spain. I'm not going to stay here. And at which point... It's like, well, then we're breaking up. But actually, that was the first sort of shot across the bow. But it was more like that opened the door for negotiation, at which point we negotiated a term, which was, all right, if we're both miserable, we'll make sure we come back together and we'll have a check-in at this time, you know? So it was kind of, we were both a little bit knowing that things were going to, you know, were really good and maybe we needed to take a quick break, test it and and come back. I know that sounds bizarre, but <laughs> I went to Spain. I left my job at Brides. I went to Spain and I called my girlfriend a month later and said, you got to come over here. This is too much fun. I miss you so much. And she came over and we were back together. And so that was great. But I, I really kind of, I don't know. I felt really entrepreneurial. I felt the energy of starting a business. It was just a happy breather, I suppose. How long were you there? I, I was there for a little over a summer. And then I I went to see some of my friends in Arizona because we periodically got together. We combined it with a conference. And I heard somebody speak at the conference. And then I went back to Spain to finish up some work. But when I was at that conference, I saw an individual, I said, I want to work for that guy. Uh, He had made a presentation and the presentation was on uh, Fairmont hotels and resorts. And I said, I I think I'm going to go back to the States and that would be somebody I would really want to pursue because I like Fairmont and I like what this gentleman represented. So did that person work for Fairmont or they were just doing the presentation? And who was that person? That was a gentleman named Ed Mace. If I know you well enough, you're making calls to Fairmont to see what's available. Is that what So happens? I went back. I tell you what I did is first I, I flew back to the States. I asked my girlfriend's dad if I could marry her. I proposed and I got engaged. And then I moved to San Francisco because that was where Fairmont was. And there was a family connection on my wife's side. And I wanted to work for Fairmont. So you did but, this before you had a job at Fairmont? <clears throat> 
Yeah. Oh God. Yeah. I didn't have a job. So you just moved to San Francisco. No. And that's where Fairmont was. Yeah. Yeah. All right. I like it. Okay. So you're there. So I went to Fairmont. No, we don't have a job for you. I'm sorry. I said, well, I got to be useful. And I went to Golden Gate University and I offered to be an adjunct teacher for their hospitality program for graduate students. And I would talk about international marketing. So they hired me for an entire semester to teach a course in international hotel management. You know, it's funny to this day, I I say that's one of the hardest jobs I had because with graduate students, they really save their money and pay for their education. And boy, do they come after class and ask you a lot of questions. And if they don't agree with the grade, they're in your face like the customer. Mm-hmm. So I really enjoyed that a lot. And I poured myself into that teaching job while I was trying to get a job at Fairmont. And I was persistent. I kept on calling. I kept on saying, you know, give me, give me a chance. I'll, I'll, I'll work for free for three months. I was doing, you know, anything. And then somebody was hired and they said, well, speak to this person. And after about six months, they hired me and I had taught, I was teaching and I finished that episode And uh, they hired me and I was thrilled. And I went to work for Fairmont and said, you know, I worked for them for seven years. That's amazing. And so I love this about you now, now knowing you for this short time, you go after what you want, you get with Fairmont and you move up. So you're doing good work. So in each of these places, you move up. That's really true, Steve. It's, It's important to really connect with the people you work with and focus on outcomes so that you can demonstrate your value. I want to get to where you are now and I want to be cognizant of your time because you're sharing a lot with me. So you grow through Fairmont, you get to be running basically all the marketing for that company, but then you make a a move to another luxury brand. How does that happen? So I, I was just a part of a team at Fairmont that helped grow the company and I was in development for three almost yeah two and a half years and again i felt like well i've learned how to sell but i've sold in publishing i haven't really exercised any talent in filling a hotel and what would be the most challenging hotel i could find and situation but if i do that i want to run all of marketing for the company so this would be step again stepping to the side or even down to move up. So somebody approached me and said, would you be interested in being director of sales and marketing for the Essex house, which is becoming the Jumeirah Essex house and Jumeirah in New York city, right? In New York city. So you can't pick a, a more challenging hotel because it's 500 rooms, it's mixed use, it's union, it's heritage, and it's surrounded by the best of the best. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I said, sure. I'll do it for two years. And if I succeed and meet this goal, I want to be promoted to vice president of brand marketing and strategy for the company. So I went back to New York and I'm a New Yorker. So I had a little bit of a understanding of this and I had worked with New York properties at Fairmont. So I did that, that job went through a, you know, $90 million refurbishment, opened a, restaurant called Southgate, who was designed by, I think it was Tony Chi, uh, and uh, met my goals and was promoted and was moved to Dubai. Wow. So how does that happen? So you have, you're married at that time. And is your wife supportive of all this? Because she knows you by this time, right? You're going to Yeah, she's super supportive. Yeah. I moved to Toronto for Fairmont and we had our, we had two kids, really young infants. And then we moved to New York and 
I, I would say that her family on her father's side, her family was in the in the high high end adventure travel business. They, her dad had been a managing director at Pan Am and actually had started a company called Geographic Expeditions, GOX. Wow. And she had been exposed to international travel, but also okay. very high end and loved to travel. And so That's I was great. fortunate. And so we brought our family to Dubai, at which point it was quite challenging. And so I had five years with Jumeirah, two in New York, three in Dubai. So the ships were starting to come to the Middle East. And I happened to bump into one of the senior executives of a large cruise line. And they came back to me and said, would you be interested in working for us based in Italy? Dubai for was a great place, but you know, it has, you know, it's pluses. And I think there was an opportunity for my family to move to Europe. Yep. And so we moved to Italy and I took this position for Costa Crociere. And I arrived literally the week before that tragic accident of the yeah. Concordia. And, tell, and that was where it was all over the news and it sank yeah. and you arrived the week before or a week after? Yeah, a week before. And I oh, started man. my first Monday officially, you know, that right after that weekend, there are a lot of lessons learned there, but my family and I lived in Italy and in Genoa for three years. And that three-year period was all about recovery in everybody's job. And it was tragic. And it was a story of fortitude, of incredible uh, resilience, and some remarkable individuals who really helped recover. That was really interesting. And I was promoted then to vice president of product development and onboard revenue. And you know, what does that the, mean? What does that job do? Because the cruise line you have, is a little bit foreign to me. Yeah, you have a portfolio of vessels and you have the ticket that you buy. But after you purchase the ticket, you go on board or before you go on board, you want to go on shore excursions. You want to eat. It. You want to eat in the restaurants. You want to drink packages, spa treatments. Yeah. And, you know, it's about it's millions and millions of biz dollars of business if you have a big. And so. You can imagine if you sell one more massage and you have million passengers, it, it adds up. So I was responsible for that. And I studied Italian and I learned the, you know, the culture and <laughs> it was made some great friends and launched some new ships and was very grateful. And I, I was asked to be in charge of the foundation, which was a real privilege that focused on the environmental impact and how, how we can do a better job at our you know, environmental and social impact as a cruise line. I, I had three years there and we were kind of in recovery mode and we had sort of started really to turn the corner. And then there was the idea of me going and actually working for my father-in-law's company. And as I was considering that, I received a phone call from somebody anonymously saying there's there's an opportunity. And I think, you know, certainly I, that person probably, you know, mo absolutely was got a reference from somebody who was kind enough to give it to me probably and said, would you like to go to Hong Kong and start a cruise line for us? And I, I was like, well, I'm actually going to maybe leave and work for my family. And Italy was also cumbersome because structurally it was hard from a tax perspective. It was difficult at that time. In any case, it was really interesting because I was thinking of going in one route and I ended up, and so I, I asked my father-in-law and he said, you know, I would really go to Hong Kong because that's once in a life opportunity. 
Yeah, and you become president of a giant corporate yeah. group of Genting, right? Is that hard to follow, <laughs> Genting, right? Yeah, it was, dream, it was Dream Cruises. You know, it's funny. You get excited about these ideas, and then you show up, and you're like, okay, where's my team? And, you, you know, you have one accountant, one, you know, intern. And that was really a fun project, but I took it. And launching, building building ships and, and launching them is not for the faint of heart. And it's extremely complex. And particularly in a foreign country like, like Asia, and China, you know, mm-hmm. specifically China. And I, I said, okay, I'm going to do this. You know, I built a great team. We started with literally three, four people. We built the division hired the people. I had some great, great people I worked with and, and launching a cruise line in Asia was really spectacular and learning the destinations and the culture. And that's where I really started to translate a lot of my experience, you know, in terms of my interest in cross cultures, I managed in majored in international management in hotel school. And suddenly a lot of these things started to come alive. And if anybody wants to read a really good book on, on culture and the, and how to sort of effectively manage across cultures, there's a book by Aaron Meyer, who is an instructor professor at INSEAD. And this book really manifested a lot of what I learned in terms of persuasion and, and the different aspects of working in Europe and working in Asia and working in the Middle East and how, you know, I was building some capacity for really understanding how to bring the best out of people from different cultures and understanding how I could be more effective as a leader. And so it, there was a huge amount of maturing that happened during that job in Hong Kong. Do you look back on it fondly or was it just really challenging? I, I look back on it fondly because what was accomplished by, you know, in such a short period of time in terms of building these billion dollar ships, launching them in Asia and creating itineraries and and experiences that were really relevant to the diversity of Asia, which is absolutely different depending on your source markets, you know, whether you're going to, you know, to Singapore or Indonesia or Philippines and you're, or, or mainland China, or you have a lot, a lot of nuances and you you really understand those nuances better and how little you know and how important it is to see the kind of universal picture of your business and the strategy versus sometimes on the Western world, we're very kind of pragmatic and linear. And, you know, it was, it was the antithesis of what I had experienced in the Western world. And I'm very... I'm very nostalgic about it. And I really got close. You know, I hired everybody. I interviewed everybody. I built a culture with the help of my, you know, leadership team. And, and, you know, I had some, I had good sponsorship. The end result of that cruise line is a little tragic because of things that are out of my control, but nonetheless, I wouldn't change a thing. And so what happens? It comes to an end. What ends well, up I had now? left. I think the protest had started in, in Hong Kong. There was, you know, pers- my, my uh, desire to be closer to my family was really burning. We had launched three ships. It was very clear that the role of an American leader, you know, was going to be more and more challenging, perhaps, as it related to just the geopolitical situation. At that time, frankly, thought I would take some time off. And my girls had were growing up and they were, one got into college and I kind of wanted to be there for their first day and yeah. going to college. And 
so I, after four years, I, I didn't see the horizon as being, you know, just the stability of that environment as being very positive. And I came back to the States and I just simply took some time off. And that was a great pause because a lot of what I did started to manifest in, in, as you get older, you decide what's important to you, who are the personalities and people you've worked for that really you respect or emulate. I'm very excited to have Raul Leal, the CEO of SH Hotels and Resorts, joining us today. Raul, thanks for joining us. Hey, Steve. It's great to be here. For a listener, can you give us the the minute download on your company now and what brands you have sure. and what they're like. Yeah. So SH Hotels is a management company in a, in, with a collection of brands owned by, you know, Barry Sternlich, who founded Starwood and also was famous for developing, you know, W Hotels. And uh, we have a collection of three brands, which is One Hotels, the the eco-sustainable brand, Baccarat Hotels, which there's one in New York, but about to grow exponentially all over the world, which is the ultra-luxury ultra five-star brand. And then we have Treehouse Hotels, which is started in London, is about to open in Manchester next, and then Miami and Silicon Valley, which is really a, a kind of a playful version of One Hotels. It's lighter, a little bit younger, four-star brand. I love it. And so... I don't know if you're like me, but when I walked into the one hotel the first time, I was actually in there pre-construction walking with some of my friends that worked there. Yeah. I remember them telling me the idea. I was like, wow, a sustainable hotel. Like it wasn't, no, there was like the green movement, but that was something different. Yeah. Was that something that hit home with you? Because now it's well, very important to me living here in Miami, you know? Yeah. So, so, so we didn't, we didn't publicize as much as, as one does because it was part of our ethos, but the Virgin Hotels were all super green. Like the first hotel was gold lead certified and we had lots of eco programs inside because that's what Virgin is really about as well. Right. So to me, the transition was easy. Now, one hotels does a much better job of it inside the hotels and the materials and the vision and carrying it forward because that's really the ethos of the brand. Right. But I was a, I was a believer. I thought that we needed to be more responsible towards the planet and regardless of what side you're on it politically, whatever you think, we just need to clean up after ourselves a little bit better, right? No, that's true. Uh, just, just to keep the planet, you know, just to upkeep the planet, whether you believe that, you know, the effects on everything else, just you don't want to walk into the major cities in our country or anywhere else and see the bay littered with, with garbage, right? So that's how I think all businesses contribute. So I believed in Barry's vision. And of course, now it's just part of the world that we live in and, and hopefully, uh, you know, making the planet a better place. And, and the vision of One Hotels is really to inspire others to, to follow our lead, just to do better any way that they can. You know, not every building in the world is going to be lead certified. Not every company is going to be eco-friendly, but everybody can do better. No, it's true. And it's something that helped inspire me. You know, as the listeners know, I started a coffee company called Biscayne Coffee. 10% yeah. goes to help save the bay. Right. And yeah. so it's just something that anybody can start if you just have a little passion to do. Yeah. It's just little subtle changes that you can make that make a, make a big impact. It's not if anybody just did a little bit. It would have a, a ridiculous impact. Well, now you've got three different brands. Yeah. You know, I think one hotel and treehouse, you know, kind of like sister and brother. But, you know, Baccarat stands alone. And it's ultra luxury. What is it like yeah. running three different brands and telling those three stories and having different leaders in all of those places? I think it's a lot of fun. Actually, I think the, the, the thread, look, each brand retains their own purpose and their own person. But there is a, a cultural thread throughout SH 
mm-hmm. related to the values, our values that that tie into the other brands as well. So it's interesting, you know, we have our GMs conference coming up in Miami shortly in the next month and a half. And, you know, we have all three different brands attending. And if you were there, you, you'd think it's, you wouldn't know the difference. You know, oh. people interact well with each other. They have a lot of fun. It's totally three different points of view. But I think, look, at the end of the day, I think each brand, as long as they retain their identity and their purpose, you allow them to be themselves, are going to be successful. As kind of the master master brand, we're, we're just a horizontal platform facilitating standards and operations and helping and supporting them. But each brand has to stand on its own. So what are you most excited about now in this coming year? This year is almost done. What are you most excited about coming up? Well, we have some wonderful openings coming up. We have uh, one Hanalei Bay, which is the old St. Regis in Kauai, which should open around first or second quarter and will probably be one of the nicest resorts in the world. It's It's amazing. Yeah. Then we have the Treehouse in Manchester opening up in the second quarter as well, which is an old Marriott Renaissance converted with some amazing amenities, including an amazing rooftop. And then in May, we open up the uh, London One Hotel in Mayfair, right on Berkeley Street, which is a phenomenal location and just an incredible asset with, with some great food and beverage and some amazing room product and suites. So uh, other than that, we have, you know, just growth all over the world, as far out as, you know, places like in Japan and Australia and Dubai coming that we're all excited about. So no, I love hearing that. And you mentioned something. That kind of I want to tie into about hiring. So you mentioned something on LinkedIn. You're big on LinkedIn, so I tell all listeners follow Raul on there. But there was one post that really kind of struck home with me. Or I still think about it. You posted about a month ago. Was talk about the back of house for team members. Yeah, you talked about changing it. What would your vision be if you could start changing the back of house for the team that's there? What would it it be like? Well, it's about a bit of a dual pronged answer. So one is. Um, you know, for new products that are being developed, you know, from all the new brand, from all brands out there, I mean, you should start from zero first with the back of the house for the teammates today, instead mm-hmm. of leaving that to be like, okay, do we have any extra space for the employee cafeteria? And that's kind of what the history has been, right? But I think my, my point of view on this is that at a, at a time when we have the ability to work remotely, there are certain capacities inside the hotels. Real estate is so expensive. So there's also the other point of view is that, look, we need every, every piece of square footage to drive revenue. I get it. So why not take advantage of the times that we live in and, and take departments like maybe accounting and even the sales team that don't necessarily need to be on the property every single day and take all those administrative offices and just make them more thoughtful employee areas, expand the cafeterias, give people wellness areas and places that they can relax in during the day, right? And, and make it a you know, take a page out of the tech company's books. What what are the first things that they do when they build their headquarters? They they, they build places that people want to come to work in. And our, the industry's never been great about that. So I think that not only our industry, but I also think offices will change quite a bit as well. As new offices are coming up, if you want people back in the office today, besides making the culture enjoyable, just make it a place where people feel, wow, I really, it's kind of a cool space. I love the furniture. Mm-hmm. They take, the ergonomics are great. Just little things like that. And I, I think that should be that's something that we're trying to even do now internally as much as we can with the buildings that we have is taking a look at the back of the houses and see who who can we deploy and say, you know, we're okay if you work from home. And this gives us more space for our teammates and housekeeping, the front desk, engineering that that have to be there seven days a week, no matter what, to to take care of our consumers. 
Yeah, I think it's great. And you have history of doing it over at Virgin when you first got there. So it just shows you can yeah. be remote. You don't have to be there. Yeah. Well, we could talk an hour about that, but I want to wrap up, you know, because I know sure. you have a busy day and you want to get over to your weekend. You've been around the world. You've worked at great places. You've worked with great people. But if Raul was starting on your team now at SH Hotels, Raul was starting on your team, what advice would you give to young Raul today? I think the same advice that I just I actually just just met with a, a young lady from Cornell the other day. And I said, you know, I mean, one is just have a clear vision for the future, what you want to do as soon as you can. And, you know, and set and set some timetables for yourself and some goals that, you know, make sense. And, you know, perseverance is, is everything. You're going to learn probably much more from the poor leaders as you are from the good leaders. I certainly have. It's not as easy as it sounds. I've, I've been treated harshly by many people who have supervised me over the years. And I, I learned a lot from those people, right? I learned that the way that you shouldn't treat people to get more productivity out of them is that you need to respect people as individuals and help them as, as much as you can along the way. And, you know, realize that not everybody's a fit sometimes, that things have to change, but, you know, just treating people with kindness is just critical on the journey, in my opinion. And lastly, going back to what I said is, if you can, people will definitely help you if you have a vision for yourself and, and you want to get there. And I think most people will try to help you. And it's great to have some great mentors along the way to help you kind of get there and say, here's your direction. And you may not always agree with them, but it certainly helped me along the way. This podcast is brought to you by Biscayne Coffee. Biscayne Coffee was founded with a giving spirit and a big idea to enjoy delicious coffee roasted in Miami while helping save Biscayne Bay and the animals that live there. As a former food and beverage director, I can assure you these are some of the best quality beans on the planet. 10% of every coffee sold is donated to nonprofits to help preserve Biscayne Bay for all to enjoy. Visit BiscayneCoffee.com today and use promo code MENTOR at checkout to save 10% on your first order. Drink good coffee and create a good outcome.